Okay, let's pray and then we'll get into this. It's quite an amazing section today. Father, we ask you to bless our word and we um, put before you our attention, our hearts. We ask you to draw all of that to yourself, Father, so that our focus is on your greatness and your power and what you have for us here today. In Christ's name, amen. So, um, this morning we're really going to be looking at uh, opportunity and tragedy. Opportunity because God is compassionate and wants men to come to him to be saved. But God is also holy and there's a tragedy because in the circumstances of our study this morning the, the people the Lord is speaking the people he's speaking to they have to make a choice and they're choosing against him and they're taking the risk that God is not a holy God. They're assuming that um, and they're not going to embrace his compassion. They haven't been doing that. So this isn't some sort of distant thing, some thing about Israel thousands of years ago. Uh, the same choice exists today. It's exactly the same choice. Have you ever heard anybody say, um, prepare to meet your God? I, I bet that line's been used in a lot of uh, violent movies. <laughs> it, it sounds like a, right, a line right before a gunfight breaks out, right? I think I've heard Burl Ives say that in some old western, but I'm trying to remember it. But the assumption is that whoever is being threatened, the assumption is when you say that, the, the person you're talking to is not going to like meeting God. Isn't that sort of the assumption of that? Is it going to be a bad thing? Personally, I'm looking forward to it. I really am. Not because I'm wonderful. Not because I'm a holy person. Because I'm not. I'm looking forward to meeting God because the Lord has laid out the terms to receive a warm welcome from Him when we face Him and I accept those terms. That's the only reason I'm excited about it. Not because of anything in me. Now some people think that the meeting will never happen because there's not going to be a God on the other end of things. That's taking quite a risk because nobody can possibly know that. And when you ask them why they think that, that there's not going to be a God after, the, after their life is over, you get answers that, that are pretty unpersuasive. Well, I can't see him. I, nobody's ever seen him. It's true we can't see God, but the, the evidence of his existence is so obvious in what he has made, including and especially us, human beings. So being one of us, we should get it. The Bible says um, it's so clear that we are without excuse for not believing. Now the creation itself strongly indicates that God is a moral being because we humans who are so far above the animal kingdom that you can't even measure the distance. We're so superior to them. God is infinitely superior to us but we are way above the animals. And we are moral. You can't help but think morally in terms of right and wrong. It's built into us. God gave us that. So that's what it means to be made in his image. And so if the creature is moral, the creator is moral. And that he is moral strongly suggests that there will be a reckoning. A meeting, if you will. What will happen at that meeting? Well that we can't tell from nature. 
What are the terms of acceptance by our Creator when we meet Him? Well, without more information, we're not really sure about that. But we can infer, and I think very reasonably, since we are made moral and with the ability to express ourselves in language, which is a truly fantastic thing that we have, this quality, thinking and putting words in language and communicating and all kinds of abstract and amazing ways with each other, that he has probably communicated to us since he made us with this great capacity, he has probably communicated to us somewhere in this world so that we can know what that meeting will be like. And he has done that. God has communicated with words, but where? Where is he communicated with words? It's right here. It's in the Bible. That's how he's done it. And I'm convinced it's the Bible. Now somebody else might say it's some other source or some other scripture or some other writing. But how can we be certain? How can we know it's the Bible? Well, there's several reasons that are overwhelmingly persuasive to me. It reads a lot more like history than any other religious works. And that history is being confirmed more and more by archaeology. That is to say the Bible actually is a book of this world, the real world, the world we actually live in. It's most scriptures of holy writings of other kinds are just very speculative and mystical and all of that. This is a book for people that live in this world. More than that, it explains the world way better than any other religious text or any other kind of philosophical speculation or anything like that. It explains me to myself and that is a real treasure because I had a lot of questions about me and it explains it. Why am I so amazing with all these faculties I have and so wicked at the same time? How is it that I can think and create and interact and write and make films and communicate and yet I'm, my heart is so polluted? That's the question everybody should ask because it's true of every human being. And I've looked, I have literally looked everywhere for explanations. I've checked it all out. All the explanations for why I am so wonderful and I'm talking about the being a human being and so wicked. The Bible is the only place that explains those two things. Science is dismal at explaining the most important things, which are those two questions. Why, why am I that wonderful and that broken, that wicked? The pagan religions, they don't explain it at all. They don't even try to. The Bible says we're made in the image of God, so we're rational, we're creative, we're moral, and it says we've fallen away from God. So we are wicked because of that. Our, our entire race, humanity, has fallen away from God. We divorced ourselves from the very source of goodness, so we can't be good. It's just not in us to be good. We can do some good things, but that fundamental quality of our hearts is not good. So that's enough reason right there to believe the Bible is the one, is the way God communicated. That's the, that's the book. Because it's rooted in the real world and it actually explains us to ourselves so well. And then there's that other thing, that other person, the greatest person that ever lived, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, and he's only found in the Bible. That's how we know about him. He's the most wonderful, compelling human being that's ever lived. He gave mankind the highest moral standard ever known, and nobody's ever surpassed it. And he actually lived that moral standard. 
and he's the only one who ever lived it, and not only at that, most of the Bible, which explains us to ourselves, it, most of the Bible existed before Jesus, but it told us all about him and his coming, which is impossible. So that's kind of, that makes the book sort of miraculous right there. And Jesus believed the Bible, and he believed the Bible was the only book from God. So all of that ties together rather wonderfully. He believed it all, he believed every bit of it, he lived it, he lived by it, and he died by it because it predicted his death. And then he rose from the dead, which nobody's ever done before, so that kind of puts the capstone on all of that. So it's not unreasonable to think that that's where God spoke in the Bible. It's actually the most rational explanation of all the possibilities. I'm a possibility guy. What are the options? Which is the best option? Well the Bible is by far the best option for explaining the real world. All that together says that there's going to be an accounting before our Creator. And to be happy about that coming means knowing how to arrive at that meeting with a successful well I would call it a blessed outcome, that it will be a wonderful experience, not a horrible experience. Prepare to meet your God. Those words occur in our text today, in, in Amos chapter 4. So we ended last time at verse 5, and verse 5, um, the first five verses of chapter 4 is where God has clearly stated that the nation Israel is doomed to attack and to be taken off into captivity. And it's because they sin without regret and they refuse to repent. So we've seen in Amos that God's chosen people, Israel, had turned away from him into gross idolatry, immorality, oppression. Justice was twisted to favor the rich and the powerful. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, even the ladies of Israel oppressed the poor and crushed the needy. Those are those cows of Bashan. <laughs> Verse 2 of this chapter, because of that, God swears by His holiness, He swears by His perfect goodness that Israel will be broken by a cruel enemy and her people will go into captivity. So today we're picking it up at verse 6 and here God starts a list. It's a list of the ways that God demonstrates his displeasure, has demonstrated his displeasure to Israel. He has ordained all kinds of bad things to happen to them ever since they became a nation and started right away with idolatry. They put up idols to worship instead of him. You know how people often find themselves in painful and difficult circumstances and they look up to heaven and they say, why me? He's going to tell them. But they don't ask that question or if they do ask it, they don't ask God. Most people just throw it out there as kind of an exclamation of frustration. Why me? He's actually going to give them a list. list of all the ways he's been trying to get their attention. And these aren't arbitrary ways, they, they might seem like natural occurrences or just things that happen in the world, but they actually fulfill very specific warnings that God had given them hundreds of years before that if they went that path, that this would happen to them. So we've talked in, in the past here in Amos about the Palestinian covenant, which is the covenant God made with Israel right before they entered into the Holy Land. And he said if you behave this way according to the law, and he gave all kinds of blessings he would pour out on them if they obeyed that law. 
And then he gave them a longer list of things that would come upon them, curses, if they didn't obey that law, if they didn't put him first, if they didn't love him, if they didn't live righteous lives. Now all of that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 28. That's where the Palestinian covenant appears. So that was with Moses and here we are in Amos many, many, many years later, hundreds of years later. But they're still being held accountable to that. They are to honor from the heart the Lord God and they are to practice the law of Moses. And if they did that they would be the happiest and most materially blessed people on earth. What a promise. But if they reject that covenant, both turn their heart and soul to other things, to idols and various kinds of wickedness, then God says the hammer is going to fall. So the Bible, you may have noticed, frequently describes God, if you've read through the Bible at all, you've, especially the Old Testament, it talks about God being slow to anger and very patient. And He is. He is. He gives many opportunities to repent. He sends prophets to warn and remind each generation you are a chosen people, you have great obligations to the true and living God, you've got to fulfill them or you will be destroyed as he said. But eventually that patience runs out and, he's, and he shows his justice to the unrepentant. So God over time let Israel know of his displeasure by afflicting them in certain ways with these curses of Deuteronomy 28 and those are promises for disobedience in the, in the Palestinian covenant. So first he allows uh, periods of hunger. So if you look at verse 6 he says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So that's describing a pretty severe famine, crop failure perhaps maybe a big die-off of, of herds through disease or insufficient sustenance for those animals but they're hungry that's why they have clean teeth they have nothing this isn't talking about brushing and flossing that's, that's not what that means they're clean because they haven't chewed on anything there's nothing there's no bits of anything in their mouth that's what it that's what it means remember Hebrew poetry little couplets the first line and the second line explains or adds to the first line in some way. So the first line is cleanness of teeth, the second line is lack of bread. That's what cleanness of teeth means, lack of bread. So listen, in cult, you know, even today in cultures where there's not food preservation, like canning or freezing or refrigeration or things like that, one bad crop can bring starvation on a, on a group of people. Uh, we, we saw that in Uganda. I've talked to them Many times over there I said, what about this? What about that? You know, to preserve food. They don't have the capacity for that yet in most of the rural areas. So if they have a bad crop, it's a disaster for those people. Still that way. I said, let's get the 4-H kids over there and teach them canning. Well, we don't have this, the means to do all of that. They don't have the stuff for it. They still don't. They're just starting to learn about those things. So this is a God-brought food preservation issues he brought disaster to them because they they were so disobedient so that's one thing that he did now he told them he was going to do that in Deuteronomy chapter 28 if they broke the law if they kept violating it if they did not obey him he told them that Deuteronomy 8 28 17 it says cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl you know where you make your bread 
Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground. The increase of your herd and the young of your flock. They'll be cursed if you are idolatrous and if you are disobedient to the moral law of God. They should have known but these people were probably long past reading the Bible. They probably read the Bible as much as the average American reads the Bible which is not at all. Their priests served idols instead of the living God. Not the law of God. So they weren't teaching the law of God. And without a standard, without God's standard, there's not going to be any repentance. Because you've got to measure yourself by something and people are too wicked to measure themselves by anything else. So God sent prophets. He gave them a fresh word from him on a regular basis to go back to the law, to obey the law, to read the law, to follow Moses. And Israel ignored all of those prophets. They even killed them. So the key line in this whole section from verse 6 to verse 11 is yet you did not return to me. That's the key. That's the repeated phrase all through here. So really uh, five times it says that. Five times it's repeated. Yet you did not return to me. When you were given many opportunities you did not return to me. So this is a fine example of um, that happening and, and probably the best example we won't bother turning there but in 2nd Kings chapter 8 God brings a famine on Israel. It's very explicit. Elisha who was one of the great prophets to the northern kingdom about a hundred years before Amos was sent and proclaimed a famine of seven years on them. So that was that's the example of what he's talking about here. So God is looking back over 200 years since Israel became an independent nation in the time of Amos and just giving all these times when he gave them opportunities through affliction to turn to him to see what they did wrong and repent. Many opportunities. So that's the first one. The next one is drought. Verse 7. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. That's a really bad time for it not to rain. I would send rain in one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me declares the Lord. So withholding rain at that critical time was meant to get their attention. That's what it was for. Another one of those forewarnings from Deuteronomy 28 verse 24. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. That was the promised curse if they didn't obey. Something like that was happening. And here again, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Now maybe they prayed to the golden calves for rain that they had set up. Maybe they danced in the, in the sunshine or something to try to get the rain. Or maybe they um, sacrificed their children uh, to Baal and uh, burned their children. Maybe they did that to get rain, but they didn't turn to the living God. They didn't repent and they didn't follow the law. Other times the Lord allowed nature to attack their vineyards and their gardens and their trees. Verse 9, I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. So the word for blight there can be translated like a scorching wind. Uh, the word means sort of like blasted. And Pharaoh, Pharaoh had a dream in uh, Genesis 41. I don't know if you remember that with Joseph and all that. But uh, he sees the grain have being really thin because of a, a scorching east wind. Well that would be what it's describing right there. Mildew is some kind of plant disease. So that's another aspect of this. 
Deuteronomy 28 verse 22 mentions blight and mildew as part of the curses that will fall upon Israel if they don't keep the covenant. So there they are. He says, I've been doing that to you at times. If they ignored the law and were unfaithful to the Lord's calling, those things would come. Verse 9 also mentions fig trees and olive trees, a food source very carefully cultivated in that part of the world, a huge part of it. Well locusts can do a lot of damage to those trees and uh, they would be fruitless for a good year at least. Deuteronomy 28, um, this verse 40, you have olive trees through your territory but you will not anoint yourself with the oil for your olives will drop off. And then verse 42 of Deuteronomy 28, the cricket shall possess all your trees and the produce of your ground. That was the warning and that's what came about at certain times. Devastating, devastating uh, disasters for them in terms of their produce. These are supposed to be attention getters. Maybe we deserve this, you're supposed to say. But they didn't do that. Verse 9 ends, yet you did not return to the Lord. You did not return to me, declares the Lord. Next verse, verse 10, pestilence and war. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. The stench of the camp, of course, would be unburied bodies. Even today over in Ukraine, they're quickly burying in mass graves people slaughtered by the bombings that are going on there. They have to. The pestilence would be just a destructive pandemic of, of which there have been many deadly ones down through the ages. And guess what? The Palestinian covenant promised that that would happen too. Deuteronomy 28, 27. The Lord will smite you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and with the scab and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. Deuteronomy 28.60, he will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt which you were afraid of and they will cling to you. You know when God brought Israel out of Egypt he promised them protection from all the ravaging diseases that afflicted people in those days which were many if they would keep the covenant and they didn't so he allowed those diseases to come at different times in their nation. War also, he talks about their soldiers there in verse 10. Defeat in battle. In Amos' day, Israel was very strong, but they had experienced their share of defeats in the past, and God was warning them, tapping them on the shoulder, repent, turn to me. But, verse 10, the fourth time the Lord says this, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So that's one more. Now there's another one, the last one, the fifth one mentioned here in verse 11. It's a really stunning image and it's a little bit less clear what he's talking about exactly. He says, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Okay, so a brand is a stick that's in a fire and you pluck it out before it's all consumed and it's all black and charred but you can still use it later for something. But this is a cataclysmic event. I mean Sodom and Gomorrah, they were completely destroyed cities. Completely destroyed. Miraculously destroyed. But here he says, I overthrew some of you. So it wasn't complete, but it was devastating. And it must have been so well known that he doesn't have to describe exactly what he's talking about. And that makes me think, if you go back to the very first verse of Amos, and I don't know that this is right or not, but it's possible. He, he described 
um, at the beginning of the book of Amos when he received his visions and it says Amos received quote visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah king of Judah and in the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash king of Israel two years before the earthquake. So it's possible that chapters 1 and 2 the first vision that he was given was before this very memorable earthquake and the prophecy in chapter 4 might be after this memorable earthquake so that could have been fairly recent. That's just a possibility because we don't know what he means when it was like God overthrowing Sodom and Gomorrah but a major earthquake in those places you know those rocks and stones they I mean beautiful buildings they built they just fall over in earthquakes. That's why if you go to ancient ruins everything's falling down. It's because of earthquakes. All the big columns and beautiful things they fall over in earthquakes. So that could have been it. But it was something that got their attention and maybe now with such a level of destruction maybe now they'll repent. Maybe now they'll return to the Lord. But verse 11 says, yet you did not return to me declares the Lord. The fifth time he says that. Five times he invites them to return to him by inflicting pain and calamities that did not destroy them but warned them. And he invited them by the word of God through the prophets to return to him. And he had open arms if they would just come back. But they didn't. So Amos comes along 200 years after the kingdom was divided and he's prophesying to the northern kingdom there. 200 years. God is patient. 200 years he let that kingdom go on. But he's running out of patience. It's coming to an end. So these warning shots, these fulfillments of the curses of Deuteronomy are small warnings but the big event is coming soon. So whatever it is they wanted, whatever those people wanted, it wasn't the God of Abraham, it wasn't the God of Moses, it wasn't the God that rescued them from Egypt. They didn't love him, they didn't fear him, they had no regard for him. So now we come to the declarations that we started with this morning. Um, Destruction and captivity are what's coming they must be prepared to meet God. So verse 12 begins with therefore. So we're taking all these things that he's talked about, the five major times when they did not return to him after he'd warned them with cataclysmic things. The conclusion of the five times is therefore, verse 12, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. O Israel. So when you hear people say that they're quoting Amos. They really are. It's part of our culture. Prepare to meet your God. Some people see these words in Amos as a a gracious offer. Um, It's still not too late. And I think there's some truth in that. But clearly therefore prepare to meet your God is saying as a consequence of your refusal to come back to me the big stuff's going to happen now. What is a therefore, therefore? Well it it follows everything that's been said and it's drawing a conclusion from that. So now he says I will do this to you. So it's, it's like saying therefore because you've refused to repent after so many attempts to call you to repentance prepare to meet your God. It's a negative. It's a negative. Because God has way more power than they are realizing. Just like modern people. They don't think God has that power. They don't think they're going to meet him. They don't think there's going to be an accounting. They don't worry about those things. 
But he is a holy God. So verse 2 of chapter 4 where he swore by his holiness. Well evil has to be punished or God is not good. So that's got to happen. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. It's actually the earned wages of human sin is death. That's what sin brings about. So let's take all of this sort of national stuff and this covenant kingdom thing and let's just take the words for what they are and kind of personalize personalize them for ourselves. We are all going to meet God. We are all going to a meeting and God will be the center of that meeting. And we're going to go as we are. We're going to go as we are. It will not be a negotiation session. You're not going to come up with some ideas that God can do with you. You're not going to plead your case. In fact the Bible says your mouth will be shut if you're not a believer. It'll be an accounting. It'll be an accounting for your life on earth. It'll be too late to change things when you're there at the meeting. Jesus said do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's what gentle Jesus taught. He's talking about the judge of all the earth, the one who should be feared, the Lord God. And the Israelites had no fear of God. They had no fear of God in Amos's day. Most people in our culture have no fear of God, but everyone will meet him. Everyone. I said earlier I don't fear that meeting and again it's not because I'm better than other people but because I have received the Savior, this gracious wonderful Savior that God has provided. How can any sinful human being, how can any sinful human being like me look forward to that meeting with joy? How can we do it? Because of Jesus, that's how, because of what he did for us. That's what the cross of Jesus is all about. He takes away our sin. The Bible says he died the just for the unjust. It says he became a curse for us. The curse that was due to us, he took it on himself. Paid the full penalty. Paid the wages of sin. He paid it. He died our death. When we embrace him by faith and repent and put our faith in him we are no longer sinners to be condemned we are children of God beloved children of God for his sake it's the best news in the world that's the other reason to believe it it's the best news in the world that's a gift it's a gift of God's grace we don't deserve it but he offers it had Israel listened to Amos they would have been saved as a nation so whether it's a covenant nation or human souls that are occupying God's world there's going to be a meeting and so the big question is are you prepared? Are you prepared for that meeting? There's only two ends from that meeting. There's only two conclusions that are possible. One is eternal glory and one is absolute exclusion from the presence of God forever. Don't ever think that God is what people make up in their minds, that that's who he is. Because making up something in your mind is what we call the imagination and it's not real. God has spoken 
He has revealed himself. He has personally come to earth. The last verse of Amos 4 verse 13 tells us about the God who is really there. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth the Lord the God of hosts is his name he speaks he declares to men what's in his mind he did that through the prophets he did that through Moses he did that most of all through Jesus Christ his power has no limits. Look at the verbs here. He forms, he creates, he declares, he makes, he treads upon the heights of the earth. All of those things speak of infinite intellect and limitless power. So God is not the man upstairs, you know. He's not an old guy with a beard. He created everything that is. He's infinitely above the entire created universe and it's really big. Take a peek, take a peep through that Hubble telescope. It's really big and he's above all of it, over all of it. Why did he make such a big universe if we're all stuck here on this little planet so you would know how big he is, how infinite he is. However big the universe is and it seems to go on forever and there's gazillions of galaxies and all that stuff, he's bigger than that. That's something small to him. He's infinite. You and I live in his world and we're accountable to him. And this world has rebelled against him and we are going to meet him. You know, I read the other day that, um, you know, Rod Serling, the Twilight Zone guy? I don't know how I came across this. It was uh, some kind of a little thing on, on the internet, but he said this on his deathbed. You know, they asked him what he was anticipating. And his last words were this. I anticipate death will be a totally unconscious void in which you float through eternity with no particular consciousness about anything. That sounds like the Twilight Zone. <laughs> the problem is it's not true. He was just wanting it to be that way or thinking it might be that way. He didn't have any authority for that or any reason to believe that. He's just was thinking, in other words, he was, there's not going to be a meeting. That's what he was counting on. Whether it's conscious or not, or just some sort of floating, dithery thing, there won't be a meeting. He's, he didn't believe that. He was wrong. Because right after he said that, he met God. Right after. When he died, he met God. Infinite, holy, majestic God. And I love Rod Sterling. I love what he wrote. He had very entertaining programs. But I don't think he met God in a happy way based on his own words. I am looking forward to that meeting with all my faults because I have a wonderful Savior, a Savior from my sin. We're born in this lost world, children of Adam and Eve, sinful by nature, sinful by choice, but God gave us a wonderful Savior. So if we like the Israelites have been away from him, been away from God, Jesus is the way back. There is a way to return to him. He's the way. It is our fallen human nature to put God off. To, to wait. To hope there's some other way out or whatever. But don't think that way. There's only, only joy in knowing him. So don't let that go. There's only forgiveness. There's only being his child in knowing him. 
And everything else is so inferior to that. So even if it's been a long time, he invites you to come to him. Even if you've put him off for a long time, he invites you. But don't wait. Are you prepared to meet your God? It could happen sooner than you think. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the salvation you've wrought in Jesus. You could have destroyed the whole world anytime along the way. You could have done it the first time Adam and Eve sinned, but you wanted a people for yourself. So you sent a savior, a redeemer into the world to bring millions and millions of people into your kingdom. May we be among them. Coming to you on your terms, which is faith in the Christ you sent, bowing the knee to him as Lord, receiving his mercy and grace through his blood, and living for him. That's the way home. Thank you for being so clear about it, for giving us so much truth, so we will not be lost in our own speculations. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.